Rosenberg. Welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast. This week, I'm going to be talking very quickly about Bridge of Spies and Crimson Peak. But first up, I am looking for some help with uh, website graphic design, website construction, thinking of redoing my website, and I can always use some help with that, as well as somebody who knows how to use the new GarageBand. So perhaps there is something to be worked out if you're in the listening audience and would like to be helpful with that. Uh, Maybe we could swap some screenwriting services for that. Uh, You're also welcome to just hire me at my website, officialscreenwriting.com, to read your screenplays and to do concept consultations. So before I get to Bridge of Spies, I'm going to repeat something I may have talked about before, but I can't remember if I mentioned it. It's my favorite factoid that emerged from the Sony hack that occurred last December, and the thing that I found fascinating was that the movie Captain Phillips was an underperformer. That was the Tom Hanks movie, the true story of an American boat captain who was taken hostage by Somali pirates. And what's so interesting is that the film did not get distributed in China. It didn't make it past Chinese censors. And I know what you're thinking. I saw that movie. I didn't notice any Chinese characters. I didn't notice anybody saying anything bad about the Chinese government. And, of course, there there isn't any Chinese content whatsoever. The element that the Chinese found so objectionable is that the film shows how far Americans will go to rescue one of our own. An American can be anywhere in the world, and the United States will pull out all of the stops to get them back, even in a situation like what is described in Captain Phillips, where this guy was on a very dangerous job where there was a large amount of risk that goes into a position like that and into a mission like that. So in any case, the Chinese found that objectionable. And I thought about this in terms of all of the Chinese money that is now flowing into Hollywood that is now financing film. But if you look, there have been many, many movies made over the last five years that have been made with Chinese money uh, that have a lot of actual Chinese content stories where Americans and Chinese people sort of get together, uh, often war movies. So in any case, there have been at least 20 movies now made that are relatively large scale. I'm talking about budgets of 20 or $30 million or more that have been made that have been intended to bridge both film markets. And none of them have made it to American theaters for wide release. And I I think that's really interesting. If you can sort of solve that riddle and look at the movies that have failed to find an audience or to even get distributed, you know, there, there may be a screenplay sale in your future. That's sort of a lock that needs to be picked. And I don't think that Hollywood has figured that out yet. Instead, all they figured out is how do we change certain elements inside of our own movies in order to sell it to the Chinese audience. And I know Transformers 4 was an example of that. In any case, Bridge of Spies is the new Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks collaboration. It is written by the Coen brothers. And I don't know exactly how much the Coen brothers get paid to write movies like this and like Unbroken, 
but believe me, it is a lot. It's very possible that they get paid more for writing gig like Bridge of Spies than they do for writing and directing their own branded movies. That's actually something that occurs a lot in Hollywood where you have people who are great artists and then they go and they direct or they write uh, studio projects and make plenty of money doing it and that's how they pay their rent. In the case of the Coen brothers, we're talking about millions of dollars probably for both of those assignments and whichever other assignments they've been working on. So with Bridge of Spies, I don't want to get too much into it. With Bridge of Spies, the thing that I want you to watch for, because this is a great screenwriting film. And the reason it's so fascinating is that there are no villains Back in the day, the Russians were the villains. And then during the 80s and 90s, the Arabs were villains. And then once September 11th happened, we couldn't make Arab villains anymore because that got too close to home. That was too real. So for whatever reason, after we actually were attacked by the people that we suggested were going to attack us or attempt to attack us, we decided not to do that anymore in terms of you know popcorn entertainment. In the case of Bridge of Spies, it's amazing to see that the Russians are not villains and the Americans do not have clean hands. Instead, it's a film about a prisoner swap where we get one of their spies, We, the Americans capture a Russian spy, and he is perhaps, with the exception of Tom Hanks, this Russian spy is the most sympathetic character in the film. And Tom Hanks really the character goes really out of his way to point out that this guy was just doing his job. We have spies operating in Russia who are doing the exact same thing that this guy was doing here. And he sort of reminds us about that several times. Tom Hanks plays the lawyer of this Russian spy who's caught, and he doesn't want the job. And remember that that's part of the hero's journey. They have to refuse the call. And in this case, Tom Hanks is like, I don't want this fucking case. You know, the court has assigned it to his law firm, and they're going to be doing the pro bono representation of this guy. And Tom Hanks does not want to take the case but eventually decides to do it, recognizing that his own patriotism is going to be called into question by pretty much everybody that he runs into on the street. Everybody's going to think that he's some, you know, commie sympathizer because he is doing the patriotic thing by showing that we can treat a Russian spy appropriately through the freedoms that exist in our judicial system, which includes a trial and a fair trial. And Tom Hanks, of course, is there to make sure that that happens. And once he takes the job, then finds out that, you know, the the goose is kind of cooked already. You know, the judge says, we're going to have a fair trial and then we're going to send, you know, and then we're going to fry him or something to that effect. Um, it's very clear that the judge has no intention of actually listening to evidence. He simply wants to you know, sort of put on a show, which is exactly what we accuse the Russians of doing. Anyway, the Russians take one of our pilots who has ejected mid-flight. He was in an experimental plane and had been told commit suicide instead of getting caught. And of course, he's caught and he doesn't commit suicide. And now we have this prisoner swap and Tom Hanks is at the center of it. And what's so cool about it is that the American government is 
pretending like this mission doesn't exist. You know, Tom Hanks meets with the head of the CIA and the head of the CIA says, you know, yes, you're going to be negotiating on behalf of our government. You just can't claim that you are a representative of our government and we will disavow all knowledge of, you know, your participation and the permission that you've been given in the case that anybody finds out that we've sent you to do this. (laughs) So he has a second impossible mission. You know, first he has to defend the undefendable, and then he is sent to clandestinely arrange a prisoner swap. And once he ends up in East Berlin, while the Berlin Wall is going up, he finds himself in this thicket of different agendas. And this is the point that I was getting to that I haven't mentioned yet, which is that there's no villain in this film. It is simply that the antagonists have a different agenda than the hero. And once Tom Hanks gets to East Berlin, he finds that there is the government of, I forget what they're called, the whatever operating government is, you know, running East Berlin. And then he has to deal with the Russians. And remember that the Russians and the East Berlin government are supposedly working together, except they're not, and they have different you know, uh, public officials who have different marching orders from, you know, different higher ups. And in the middle of it, we have this, you know, amazing lawyer who's attempting to negotiate not only the release of a pilot that the Russians have in custody, but also an American student who unfortunately did not make it out of East Berlin before the wall went up and the border there was militarized. So watch for how the film treats all of this moral equivalency. And it is something that, you know, when conservatives say that Hollywood is incredibly liberal, I often think that that's sort of an unfair chart because I I think that there's sort of a very conservative bent to a lot of the fundamentals about how Hollywood cinema and television operates. But to me, Bridge of Spies represents one of the most sort of liberal-leaning films that I've ever seen, simply because it doesn't show the world in the old black and white. Everything is a shade of gray. And, you know, it's kind of funny that we had a movie this year called Fifty Shades of Grey. That's what Bridge of Spies should be called. And yet it's funny. It's smart. I'll be honest. The first half of the film wanders quite a bit. And the reason that they do that is that, you know, in terms of normal structure, you would put Tom Hanks in East Berlin by page 25. He would know that he needs to negotiate this prisoner release, and then we have the complications and the different antagonists and so forth. This film takes a lot more time to get there. It's well over two hours. And the reason for that is that they're really trying to build sympathy for the Russian spy that Tom Hanks is representing. He, in his own way, is honorable. Just because he was working against the United States does not mean he's not an honorable man. And as a screenwriter, you might want to look at the many ways and moments where he proves that he is honorable. Moving on to Crimson Peak. This is a weird movie. The movie, of course, has been a massive disappointment. And there have been a lot of massive disappointments over the last two months or so. There have been over nine studio films and a couple of independent films with very big casts, including Truth with Robert Redford. Um, 
you know, The Last Witch Hunter, Gem and the Holograms, Rock the Casbah, which is Bill Murray and Barry Levinson. Our Brand is Crisis with Sandra Bullock opened lower than her worst grossing movie, which was a romantic comedy called Two If By Sea, which was with Dennis Leary. I mean, to imagine that the film opened a million and a half dollars below Two If By Sea with ticket prices that are approximately 40% higher than they were in 1996 shows you that something really strange is going on because this is Sandra Bullock's first post-gravity movie. And in any case, Crimson Peak was a huge disappointment like so many other films that are bleeding red ink. So Crimson Peak is a huge financial disappointment. There were some tracking problems on this movie, meaning that it was sort of a bomb in waiting. And the reason for that that I had read was that they were selling a very different movie than what the film actually is. They were selling a horror movie, and in reality, it's a gothic romance. Crimson Peak is a huge disappointment at the box office. It's a very, very expensive failed film. I would suggest that it didn't just not connect with audiences, that it fundamentally does not work as a screenplay. Now, we can talk about a lot of elements in the film that don't quite work, including, one, the fact that Guillermo del Toro has spent so much money on the sets that we can very often see 50 feet in front and behind of characters. We can see what's going on on the sides of them, and traditionally, if you want to get audience members scared, the less you show, the better. The more shadows there are, the tighter that things are displayed and the sort of more claustrophobic the sets become adds to the pressure cooker of what creates tension. And in this case, everything is so fucking bright. And even when it's dark, you can still see every little detail in these multi-million dollar sets that have been created for the film. The other problem is that the ghosts are not scary, and you can possibly connect that to the fact that we can see so much of them because everything is so bright. The, the problem that this film had in terms of marketing is that it's a gothic romance. It is not a Halloween horror movie. There are elements of horror in it, like ghosts, like blood, like murders. But the reality is that this is a mystery, and it's about a young woman who is an author or attempting to become an author. She has written a book. And she meets a young man played by Tom Hiddleston who is attempting to build something. He's an inventor and he's created this machine that gets clay out of the ground and he's gone to different countries looking for financing so that he can, you know, build this thing or so that he can keep the development of it going. Because, of course, once we get to Crimson Peak, we see that he's already built the thing. In the film, uh, he is courting this young girl because her father is incredibly fucking rich. And the film telegraphs this really early on that he is plotting with his sister, played by Jessica Chastain, to get this girl's money and potentially kill her. This stuff is not just sort of something that the hero needs to unravel. They put this right in front of the audience from the get-go. Maybe not that they're planning on murdering her, but it's clear that, you know, what his intentions are, and it's to get to her money. And her father is brutally, brutally murdered. In one of the funniest moments I've ever seen, Charlie Hunnam's character plays the, the doctor of the family. And the hero's father 
let me just describe how he dies. Somebody t- basically grabs his hair from the back and slams his head over and over into a porcelain sink. The sink breaks. Half of his face is missing. It is collapsed. <laughs> and then there, there's this moment where the doctor takes a look and they're like, oh, he, he must have slipped and fell. And half of this guy's face is missing. Clearly, he has been bashed over and over and over. And this character, the doctor, looks and he's like, hmm, there's something suspicious here. It's completely fucking ridiculous that any, any person with eyes, let alone a doctor, would know that this guy didn't slip and fall and break his face in half and break the sink in, in the process. So in any case, that was one of many ridiculous ridiculous fucking moments in this movie, including, oh, this was also in the first act. So when Tom Hiddleston's character meets our hero, she has this manuscript that she's written and is trying to get published and, of course, can't be taken seriously because she's a woman, despite the fact that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has been incredibly successful. So he picks up a page of the manuscript off of a desk, glances at it, looks back up at her and says... It's very good. And she's like, really? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like, how does he pronounce this entire book really good by picking up a page and glancing at it? I I, I thought it was really funny. And it worked to undermine the respect that I had for the hero because clearly she's a fucking dupe. She's an idiot. You know, the, the fact that she's being manipulated so easily really lessens audience identification with her. And the problem that this film has is that, like I always say, show it from the hero's perspective. This film goes really far outside of that. We know exactly what the villains are up to. We have entire scenes between the villains where they're discussing exactly what they're trying to do. And yet our hero is really fucking slow on the uptake. She just is not actively trying to solve this mystery. You know, as a little girl, the ghost of her dead mother crawls into bed with her and says, beware of Crimson Peak. That's the opener right there. And suddenly she ends up at this man's estate. Uh, I forget if they were married before or I think that they, yeah, they get married before they, he brings her back to England and she shows up and there's this estate that's just rotting and falling apart. And he's like, oh yeah, the place is called Crimson Peak. And she's like, Ooh, but then does virtually nothing to get herself out of this situation. And there's all these clues. The film has a really simple and easy to follow mystery code, which are the pieces of the puzzle that come together to display to the hero so that the hero can figure out exactly what's going on uh, so that the hero can solve the mystery. And in this case, she does it, but boy, is she not active about it. Boy, does she not put any energy into it. And that's where the film goes wrong. We're not watching the hero desperately trying to solve this mystery in order to save her own life. You know, it requires that sort of intensity that when you watch a film, you'll see just isn't there. Interestingly, there's two other things that I want to mention. When it comes to theme, there is no easier way to express theme in a movie and express what the character believes. Because remember, this is a gothic romance. There's no easier way for a character to speak these things aloud than to have her working on a book that 
has its own theme because she can talk about it. She can talk about the way that the characters relate to the world and therefore she's really saying how she sees the world. And of course that's going to change for a hero. For whatever reason, none of that is going on here. She's written this book. We learn virtually nothing about it, which is fucking weird because she talks about the fact that it's a ghost story and yet we don't really understand much about how she sees ghosts or what she thinks about love. You know, there's this moment where her father has paid Tom Hiddleston to go away and to break her heart. This is first act stuff. I'm not giving anything away. And, (laughs) you know, he does it and he says, you don't understand love. But I don't know that enough has been established that that makes that clear or that, you know, to have that moment really resonate earlier, she would have had to express exactly what she believes when it comes to love. And she should be wrong about that stuff. And, you know, her experience should provide some sort of bookend where we see that she now believes something different at the end. Um, Also, when it comes to the love story, it is a complete fucking wipeout. And here's why. We know that her husband is a villain. We know that he's trying to get her money. These things are not hidden from the audience. But yet the film wants us to believe that there may be a real connection between these two characters, that there may be a true romance that is occurring here, that he may actually have feelings for her. And that's one of the complications that the villain faces, which is that he is falling for his wife. You know, usually it goes the other way around, but that's, you know, he's already married to her at this point because he's pretended to love her. So... The problem here is that once they get to Crimson Peak, there is not a single moment where these two characters, husband and wife, seem to be enjoying each other's company. They may be attracted to each other, they may have sex with each other, but they do not seem to be really joyful in each other's presence. The whole thing is just sort of cold, and their interactions are cold, and he's kind of a jerk. And instead of showing that that both of them come alive when they're together are interesting that they say things to each other that makes them think and challenge and you know that it's a true relationship which by the way he's supposed to be putting on anyway you know just because he got out of the house doesn't mean that the deal is closed interestingly this is a movie where the villains have no problem whatsoever with murder or incest but forgery is completely out of the question it's like as soon as she signs the document they're gonna kill her but they can't sign it for her she's got there's even a scene close to the end of the movie where they're sort of forcing her to sign these are people who are murderers with a long track record of murder but forgery is just something that they cannot lower themselves to do it's it's sort of ridiculous now again i don't want to hold that against the movie because it's sort of a placeholder thing and you need to have this element this reason why they're keeping her alive but yeah it Again, there were so many other things in this film where it was just sort of laughable. I found that to be kind of strange. They just will not put her name. And we're like in the 1800s here. It's not like there's any sort of forensic, you know, sort of investigation that will be done on this signature. So in any case, Crimson Peak, feel free to watch it. I was really curious about it. It's gorgeous to look at, I guess. But again, it is not a horror movie. It is a gothic ghost romance that then has some really disgusting moments of violence. So much so, it's like, who's the fucking audience for this thing? Who goes there? It's a date movie where there's just 
incredible gore that's completely unnecessary. I don't know why they did it. I can only imagine that during the testing, it didn't test well. And they sort of moved it in the direction of, okay, the only people who are going to show up to this thing are the fanboys of Guillermo del Toro's. They are expecting a very certain specific type of movie, and we need to sort of move the post-production and advertising in the direction of something that will appeal to his core audience. Although, remember, they had to have filmed all this stuff to begin with anyway, so I don't think they necessarily went back and reshot it. All right, that's all for this week. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, on Amazon. If you have experience with graphic design and website building, I have a couple of different projects Uh, going on right now and one of them pays the other one probably doesn't but get in touch and we can talk and then remember to get on my mailing list at officialscreenwriting.com because the people who listen to this podcast are going to be offered a very special price which might even be free we're still building the site so i don't know what the price is going to be for the first members but we need screenwriters on there for the idea to work and the way that we're doing that is that there's going to be some very very good deal at the beginning in order to be sort of a founding member so hire me to read your screenplay or discuss your concept i do concept consultations you can hire me through either of those at officialscreenwriting.com Sometimes people send me a treatment, sometimes they send me 10 one-liners, we talk on the phone, we discuss just the direction that you need to take and which ideas work, which don't, and so forth. I'll be back, hopefully next week, with another podcast. Thanks for listening.